Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated uh, milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we ha- ha- he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word, that God the Holy Spirit who revealed these things through the apostles and prophets, that he is the one who indwells us and he is the one who enables us through illumination to understand your word, to understand how it should apply in our own lives and in our own thinking, and that it is our responsibility to be responsive to him as he instructs us, as he rebukes us, and as he corrects us, that we may live lives that you have designed, that you have a purpose for, that you might be glorified, that we might recognize that we have been called for a purpose, and that purpose is to serve you, to represent you, and to glorify you. Now, Father, as we study these things, help us to understand how the various passages of Scripture fit together to give us greater insight and understanding of this spiritual life that you have given us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is an important week this week. We could call this week Freedom Week because of the many things that have happened over the uh, course of history in this particular week. Today is the 18th of of April, and a little over uh, or approximately about 500 years ago, there was a hearing for Martin Luther, who is considered to be the progenitor, the one who initiated and got the Reformation going. There was a formal hearing for him before the emperor, Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, in the city of Worms in Germany, and it was where all of the princes of Germany gathered together, and they would meet to solve various Uh, problems, maybe deal with the issues of war because they were facing an Islamic uh, threat to the southeast of the empire. And the threat they were dealing with, one of the threats they were dealing with at this meeting was Martin Luther. And he gave a speech, and you'll find various versions of it because nobody wrote it down until some years later, But in that speech, he made a couple of vital points that really transformed history. He said, first of all, he said, according to my conscience before God, I must take this stand. 
Here I stand on the basis of God's word. And that basing this on his conscience, while we have a slightly different view because of the impact of the changes of worldview since then, the thinking of a man in the late Middle Ages was that conscience was where God's standards were stored in the soul, and we are responsible to God for the decisions that we make based on his word. And that's exactly what uh, Luther stood for. And it is that concept of conscience that is a foundation for what comes to be called the Protestant Reformation. And eventually... It shapes the thinking of the Puritan generation of the 1600s, people who thought through many of the principles of freedom because they understood that ultimately if we do not have freedom to live our life before God as we see fit, then we do not have freedom. And it shaped the thinking of Samuel Rutherford in his great work, Lex Rex, that means uh, the law is king, not the king is law, but the law is king. And it went on to shape a lot of the thinking of John Locke, who influenced, along with many others, and through the influence of the Word of God as well, influenced the thinking of the leaders in the uh, 13 colonies, 13 British colonies in America. And when George III set himself up to be um, above the law, it, they, they appealed to him and appealed to him for over, over 10 years. And then finally, it, it, he, was, he was recalcitrant. He would not even hear anybody who came to him. And this eventually led to the events at Lexington and Concord, which are also this week on the 19th. Uh, you have the anniversary, 19th and 20th, of the battles of Lexington and Concord, uh, which involved also mature believers. And this was following the ride of Paul Revere and uh, William Dawes and others, And what they were doing when they rode out to Lexington and Concord was to warn them that the British were coming because the British were coming, number one, they wanted to find and arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams. And they were staying at the Lexington church at the parsonage with Jonas Clark, the pastor of that church. And uh, the previous pastor of the church was actually John Hancock's father, so he was a preacher's kid. And so when that word went out, he, called, he sent word out to the men of his church who made up the lion's share of the Minutemen uh, that met, uh, met the British at uh, the uh, Green in Lexington. And that is where the shot that was heard around the world was fired. And they were standing for their conscience that goes, their thinking about that and personal freedom goes right back to, to what Martin Luther said at the Diet of Varms, uh, in 1521, I believe. And then, and then just a day or so later on April the 21st, we in Texas remember the Battle of San Jacinto, 
where uh, Texans fought one of the most significant battles in all of history and in 18 minutes defeated the army of the Mexican army of Santa Ana and won freedom and liberty for Texas. So this is an important week. And all the thinking there is influenced by this shift back to the Bible that was started by the courage and the bravery of Martin Luther in Germany at the Diet of Arms and the events that preceded that. So as you go through this week, I'll bring out a couple of other points as we go through the week on Tuesday and Thursday, but we think about what liberty is. And if liberty is lost, it is rarely regained. And so it is important for us to be in prayer about those things. Okay, let's uh, focus on Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I've titled this lesson, Abiding in Christ and He in Us. Uh, As we started through this prayer two or three lessons back, it's important to understand the structure of this prayer. And it's also important to understand that some of the language that the Apostle Paul uses here is different from the language that John uses in the Gospel of John But actually, John 15, which we'll get to this morning as well and begin to get there, helps us to understand uh, these aspects of the spiritual life that should be uh, that should be integral to our own walk with the Lord. And putting this together with what John says in John 15, what he says in 1 John 1, connecting the dots with Galatians chapter 5. Uh, verses uh, 16 and following. All of these are so important to understand what it means when we look at this phrase in Ephesians 3 that that Christ will make his home in us, that he would uh, that he might dwell in your hearts as it is translated. It has the idea of making his home in our in our lives. So just by way of review, we have this prayer where Paul prays to the Father. We learn that it is important for us to address our prayers to the Father, not to the Son or to the Holy Spirit, that prayers throughout Scripture are addressed to the Father. Uh, Second, that he prays that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them, that is, the Ephesian believers, and by application, all believers, down through the ages, down through the centuries, that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen them in their spiritual life. And so this should be a vital element in our own prayers, that if Paul felt it necessary to pray for that they would be uh, strengthened by the Holy Spirit in their spiritual life, we should pray for that too. And then the result is what we see in the first part of uh, verse 17, that Christ would make his home in them. And that result has a further purpose, and that's what we'll just begin to look at a little bit this morning so we get that context, is so that they can begin to comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for them. That is the ultimate goal, is that we come to understand the love of God for us, the the love that Christ has for us, 
and how that in turn should transform our understanding uh, because remember in John 13, 34, and 35, Christ told his disciples, he said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, that is our love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. That is the primary evidence of our spiritual life is that this lo- this unique distinctive love that is produced in us through the through God the Holy Spirit that is the first of the uh of the character qualities that is listed in Gal- Galatians 5 for the fruit of the spirit the fruit of the spirit is first love and so we are going to be spending some time talking about what this is, what this love is, and how it, how all of these things come together in this dynamic for our spiritual life. And this is the way in which we grow to maturity, and the ultimate result is what we see defined in verses 17b through 19a, that we might be spiritually mature, reflecting the love of Christ in our lives. So as we looked at this, we talked about what the Bible teaches about the ministries of God the Holy Spirit, that in light with verse uh, 16, that we are to be strengthened. That is a passive verb. It means that we receive the action of that strengthening, and it is strengthened with power through his spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the agent who who strengthens us and who empowers us in in the spiritual life. So I put together this little chart to help us understand these ministries. These things are not well understood today. You can get a dozen uh, theologians and seminary graduates together, and they'll come up with uh, a dozen different uh, definitions of many of these ministries. But that is because of many different reasons, but we have to really look at the scriptures to understand these specific uh, distinctions. So I'm not talking about ministries of God the Holy Spirit before a person saved. That has to do with conviction. That has to do with uh, his uh, illumination of the gospel. Though there are different ministries before we're saved, these are ministries that come at salvation for our spiritual life. And then there's other things that God the Holy Spirit does that are outside of this that are not just specifically directed towards believers. So first is regeneration in Titus 3.5. We are renewed, regenerated by God the Holy Spirit. He brings life where there was death. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 Uh, 5 and 6, that God loved us and he made us alive together with him. Titus 3, 5 tells us the one who makes us alive, who regenerates us and renews us is God the Holy Spirit. The second thing is that God the Holy Spirit indwells us. He indwells each and every believer. And from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 down to 22, we learn that he is the one who is also Uh, integral in building this new temple to God, and he indwells this new temple. In Ephesians um, 
2.18, it is through him that is through Christ. We both have access by one spirit. That's God the Holy Spirit, so he gives us access to the Father. And verse 22, uh, in, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit's involved in all of that. He indwells us. That's in Romans 8, 9, and 11, and 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 15. We are also at the instant of salvation sealed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is called the uh, Spirit of Promise. So this sealing is that which guarantees that God's promise of our salvation will eventually be given to us. It is his mark of ownership on us, and that seal secures our salvation uh, for all eternity. It's not it's nothing that can be lost. We're also given spiritual gifts. Each believer is given a gift or gifts, and so that we can serve the Lord from the instant of our salvation. And every time I talk about this, I'm always reminded of, of the story of the salvation of my lady who was my first grade Sunday school teacher. She was a Holocaust survivor. Her family got out. She was Jewish. Her family got out of Germany and went to Shanghai. And she left Shanghai. She married, while she was there, she married a man older than her who was a member of the British Constabulary. They eventually found their way to Houston, and they went to the church where I grew up. And uh, they got, she got saved. He probably was already saved. She got saved, and with about a year after she was saved, someone who was in front of her said, we are rebuilding the Sunday school class. Would you teach in Sunday school? And she said, I thought, I have absolutely no, hardly any knowledge of the Bible, but how can I do that? But she thought, I need to serve the Lord, and he'll provide what I need. And so even though she was a very young believer, she then took that step, trusting God to provide for her. And over the next 15 years, she and her husband directed the Sunday school program, and she and the pastor's wife wrote the curriculum that for the Sunday school classes that I grew up on and many, many others grew up on that gave us a solid foundation in the Word of God, because she was not, not going to say, well, I'm going to wait till I've been a believer for 20 or 30 years before I serve the Lord. So she just started off immediately, and that is how God used her in her spiritual gift. Also, the Holy Spirit baptizes us. He identifies us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection in Romans 6, uh, 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And then he is the one who intercedes for us. Now, all of those are permanent ministries that are ours from the moment of salvation. The ministry that is repeated is identified in Ephesians 5.18 as being filled by means of the Spirit. We've studied that many times. And that means that when we are walking by means of the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, that the Holy Spirit fills us Ephesians 5.18, with the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so that's repeated because when we sin, that halts that particular ministry until we respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit to confess sin and be restored to fellowship. 
So all of this is going on here, and now we come to that purpose that is stated in verse uh, verse 17, so that we can comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for us. So Ephesians 3:17b says that you indicating a purpose being rooted and grounded in love. Now, what's indicated by the translation here, which is an important indication uh, indicator, is that there is a semicolon after the word faith, because that that you or the in order that is uh, is be- actually begins the next thought, and then we have this phrase being rooted and grounded. In love. Now, I'll have more to say about that later, but I want to cover 17 and 18 so we have the big picture before we start looking at John 15 and some other passages. It, it, it's hard sometimes in the English text to understand or to see that what lies behind it in the Greek, and what lies behind this is indicated by the ing word being rooted and grounded in love. But the idea of rooted and grounded is expressed in the Greek with what is identified as a perfect tense verb. Now, perfect tense is important because what that tells us is that this is looked at as action that is completed in the past. It's already been completed. It's not something in process. He's not. It's not an imperative here. Paul isn't praying that they would continue to be rooted and grounded or that they would become rooted and grounded. He is telling them that because they have already been rooted and grounded, that is something that happened at the instant of salvation. And so as we look at that phraseology, the other question we should address is, well, who did the rooting and grounding? And that would be God at the moment of salvation. We are rooted and grounded. We have already been rooted and grounded. That refers to what takes place at our salvation. And it's rooted and grounded in love. And this is a difficult phrase to really narrow down because the Greek preposition that's used here, in, has a range of meanings at this time. And it could be that we are rooted and grounded by means of love. And that fits with how Paul has used this phrase even in, um, even in Ephesians, where he says, uh, at, in, uh, verse, what is that? Verse, uh, four of Ephesians 1, just as he appointed us, as I translated that for us, appointed us in him, that is, believers in Christ, church-age believers have been appointed before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless, or holy and without blame, before him we were in love. So we're appointed in love, and it's the same phraseology. So this is talking about God's love. There's a lot of debate over that. Some people try to argue that this is human love, but we're not rooted and grounded in human love. Our spiritual life is rooted and grounded in God's love. That is the foundation of that, and it starts with understanding uh, a few key passages we've talked about many, many times. 
you have Ephesians, I mean, excuse me, you have John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. In John 3.16, we're told, for God loved the world in this way. Okay, it, it's mistranslated for God so loved the world, and I've heard people uh, paraphrase that as God loved the world so much. That's not the force of the Greek word that's there at all. It is a word that is designed to show or to give an example for God loved the world in this way or God loved the world thusly. And so the example or the demonstration of God's love is that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so that grounds the concept of God's love in the act of providing salvation free of charge, no conditions. It's not on the basis of any works that we have done, but it is totally based on the work of Christ and that he, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, entered into human history, took to himself true humanity, the combining of the two natures, the undiminished deity of Christ, uh, the undiminished deity and true humanity, united together, becoming the unique person of the universe, the God-man, that he is fully God and fully man, and that these are not two uh, completely separate natures. They are united together in one person, yet without uh, a mixture of attributes, uh, so that this makes up the person of Christ. And by his coming and entering into human history, living among sinners, uh, dealing with all of the things that are part of human experience, he is prepared to go to the cross and there to suffer unimaginably for our sins. Paul echoes that verse in Romans 5.8 where he says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. So to think about what Christ did for us in salvation is one of the most significant things that we can study, that we can meditate on, think about, reflect on, dig into to understand because that is, A, it's the foundation of our salvation, so that we can understand what God has done for us and how he has saved us. And secondly, it becomes the illustration for us of what love is. If you go to the dictionary, you look at a Webster's Dictionary or the Oxford English Dictionary or any number of dictionaries, their, their definitions of love uh, ground it in human emotion. And human emotion is fleeting. It's unstable. You feel one way one day and feel another way another day. And especially when it involves people, you like them a little more one day, and the next day you like them maybe a little less. And if uh, if uh, there's going to be any kind of stability in a love relationship, it's got to be based on something other than human emotion. And so what we see in the Scripture are these these illustrations of God's love, 
and descriptions of God's love which make it something that goes far beyond simple human emotion. It has to do ultimately, as uh, I have defined it for years, ultimately with, with wanting and desiring the absolute best for the object of your love. And that requires that you understand what the absolute best is. This isn't what my opinion is, what I think you ought to do. And it shouldn't be your opinion towards the person you love of, well, you need to do what I want to do because that's what I think is best. It appeals to a higher standard, an absolute standard, a standard that is unshakable, and that is the standard of God's own character. And so we can only understand love as we contemplate God's love for us and God's love for all mankind. And that's at the very core of this passage that we're studying here in Ephesians because it is saying in Ephesians 3.18 that we, are to, we were already rooted and grounded in love, that love that God has for us. Now, even though the word love here does not say his love or God's love or Christ's love, it is apparent from the context that that's what he's talking about because we're not rooted and grounded in human love. We're not rooted and grounded in our love. And then it goes on to say that this is this rooting and grounding is, and I think it's a good way to understand it, is by means of God's love that he provided that salvation. And then um, verse 18 says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. These make it a three-dimensional, we're looking at love three-dimensionally in terms of its width, length, and height, and then it has depth. So it's a three-dimensional. But the fact is this is describing the love of God for us. And it is describing it in a way that makes it, it's reflecting on its, uh, the fact that it is infinite, that it is not uh, restricted, it is not limited, and it passes knowledge. It is beyond anything that we can fully comprehend. We can understand that God loves us. We can understand how God loves us. We can understand a lot of things about God's love for us, but we can never understand the love of God exhaustively because it is infinite like every other attribute of God's. It is infinite. And so Paul is praying for something that should characterize our life and our spiritual growth as we contemplate what God has done for us, it enables us to grow and mature in our understanding of his love for us. And as we come to understand God's love for us, in turn, that should enable us to have that kind of love for other people. So we are to enable to comprehend with all the saints the vast immensity, we could just summarize it that way, the immensity of God's love. We're going to close the service this morning with the hymn, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. 
And that is a hymn that is reflecting on this concept that God's love for us is so immense that we can never fully comprehend it. But that is what uh, Paul is praying for, that we might be able to comprehend it, to continue and grow in that comprehension, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge for a further purpose, a further result, rather, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this phrase, the fullness of God, is a phrase that relates to the character of God. And remember that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And that phrase from Romans eight twenty-eight and 29 is designed to teach us that what God is doing in our lives is designed to make us like Christ in our character. So Paul summarizes that with this phrase at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness, not some of the fullness, but all the fullness of God. So that takes us back to our understanding of what is going on here, and we need to go back to get a better handle on how we are to live and think in a way that Christ can make his home in us, and that's different from indwelling of Christ. So on this chart, which I started working with last week, we see something very similar to the chart I made on the, on the uh, Holy Spirit. The left side, these are ministries that Christ does for us that are permanent, from the moment that we are saved. They do not diminish. They are not taken away. And then in the right column, we're going to see that with the ministries of Christ toward us that are, that's repeated. So, first of all, we have seen all through our passage in Ephesians 2, 11, down through uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, that Christ is the head of, of the church. He is the head of the, of his body. The church is called the body of Christ. And headship means authority. He is the one in charge. He is the authority over the church. We as a body of believers look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our ultimate authority. We don't do things the way we think. Perhaps we'd like to have them done, but we search the scriptures to try to conform to the scriptures as best we understand them. And that is always, when it involves humans, it always, and their finite understanding, it always involves uh, that, that process of growth. But Christ is the head. The scriptures are his thinking, the thinking of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. So we are to know the scriptures so that we can understand our our purpose, and our mission as members of his body. Passages like Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, Colossians 1, 18, describe that headship. Then we have the fact that he is our high priest. Whether you are walking with the Lord or not, Jesus Christ is still your high priest. And he is the one who also inter continuously intercedes for us. We'll see that in a minute, but he is the one who represents us before God. 
so that when we pray, he is also the one who continuously inter, intercedes for us, Hebrews uh, 7.25. And he is also one who gives gifts. Often we think of the passages in First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit distri- distributes gifts. But in Ephesians 4.11, we are told that he himself, there's an emphasis there. It's not just, and he gave, but he himself, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some as pastors, pastor and teachers. That he is the one who, back in verse uh, 8, gave gifts to men. So there is, we see this emphasis all through here between the roles of the Father, the role of the Son, and the role of God, the Holy Spirit. So he gives spiritual gifts at the instant of salvation. The gifts that are specified here in Ephesians 4.11 are gifts of, of leadership for feeding the sheep because uh, pastors are under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that the gift of apostleship was limited to the first century, the gift of prophets, New Testament prophets, was also limited to the first century until the, uh, all of the revelation related to the canon of Scripture was given. And so today we just have evangelists and pastor, uh, pastor teachers. He's our advocate in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, so that if any of us sin, the passage says, we know that we have an advocate with the Father. He is standing there. So when uh, Satan comes up and accuses us of sin, then Jesus Christ is going to come out and he is going to say, well, the Father has all has heard all of your uh, accusations against this believer, but this, this person, but this person is a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a member of the family of God. He has perfect righteousness, so the case is dismissed. And he does that over and over again. He is our advocate with the Father, and he indwells us. Romans 6, 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, those are those were left over. I did not correct that slide from last time, but we'll look at some verses on indwelling in just a minute. And the repeated is what we see in John 15. He abides in us when we abide in him that's why i had those phrases underlined in john john 15 if you abide in me i will abide in you so we have to look at that because there's a lot of confusion over that particular passage but the abiding of christ in us this is talking about that uh, enhanced in uh, dwelling of christ in us is making his home in us as part of sanctification So in terms of the indwelling of Christ, we have passages like Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So Christ is indwelling. 2 Corinthians 13.3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Christ is mighty in you. 2 Corinthians 13.5, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? 
We have Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Colossians uh, 1.27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches, what's the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So now let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. This is a passage that, as I said, is uh, debated and is misunderstood because of a number of different reasons, some of which I will mention. But the passage is based on the analogy of a vine, of a grapevine. And what is important that I have seen over the years and what I've learned a lot from is that one of the professors, at, uh, one, or excuse me, one of the doctoral students at Dallas Seminary when I was there back in the 80s was a, had done his graduate work in viticulture at Texas A&M. And he did the research and has written a number of different articles and also books related uh, to this particular topic, and so that's important. So Jesus begins in this section by identifying who he is. He is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And then he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But that's a bad translation, but almost every translation takes it, this Greek word there with that understanding, and that is, that is uh, uh, wrong. It's bad scholarship, but it's influenced by a uh, theological presupposition that, that this is not talking about uh, a person who is saved and growing, but this is talking about a way to determine if you're really saved is on the basis of fruit. This is identified... Today we call it lordship salvation. Uh, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. That's the correct translation, as we'll see. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken uh, to you. And then the core part of this, what we read earlier, he says, abide in me and I in you. The I in you is not talking about the indwelling of Christ in us because it is dealing with this word for fellowship here that is abiding. So he says, abide in me and I in you. And then in 15.5, he said, he who abides in me and I in him. That is that relationship we call fellowship with Christ. Uh, the one who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And then in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, again, now it's moved from me, from him abiding in us to his words abiding in us. So that, that shows th- this connection between what Paul says in Ephesians 3 here, that let Christ dwell in you, let Christ make his home in you, and then what he says in Colossians 3.15, let the word of Christ which is here, let my words, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So these are very closely connected connected concepts. And then in verse 9 and 10, he takes it to a new level, and he says, 
As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, this teaching about abiding in his love is going to enrich our understanding of what Ephesians uh, 3, what is that, 3, 18, and 19 are talking about when it talks about that we may comprehend the, the height, the, the width, the breadth, the depth, the height of God's love, of Christ's love for us. And so we are to abide in his love. And then we get a condition in verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So abiding in his love is based on obedience to Christ. So disobedience to Christ means what? That we're not abiding in his love. So we can either abide or not abide. That doesn't sound to me like that's a salvation term. So we have several questions that we need to answer as we look at these verses, the first of which is, what does it mean to be in him? He who abides in me, he says. But in me is not the same concept as Paul's concept of being in Christ or in him. So what do these terms mean when we talk about being in Christ or in me or abiding or even the phrase take away? And we have to address this by looking at the question, to whom was Jesus speaking? Those in need of justification or those who needed to be encouraged to bear much fruit? Now, that's an important question. To whom is Christ speaking here in John 15? Well, John 15 is part of uh, the passage from John 13 to John 17. I almost want to skip ahead here in my slides so that I can just skip to this. Okay, okay, we'll go to this verse. This is, goes back to John 13. It begins in John 13, so just turn back a couple of pages to John 13. And in John 13, we have this description of the Last Supper, the Seder meal. Jesus is observing with his disciples. And I'm not going to go through everything that is in here, but the backdrop is, as John tells us, that, that Christ is going to identify one of them as unsaved and as the betrayer who first of all is influenced by Satan and then Satan will indwell him, and that of course is Judas. And in verse 2 we read, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garment, took a towel, and girded himself. He's going to give them an object lesson. Now, what he does is he begins to wash their feet. When he comes to Peter, Peter says in verse 6, Lord, are you washing my feet? Uh, in other words, he's saying, no, 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 no. This isn't right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not going to wash my feet. And so there's a little bit of misunderstanding and a lot of arrogance mixed into that. And Jesus answered him and said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. So Jesus is saying, now there's symbolism here. You don't understand that symbolism now, but you will understand it in the future. So you have to let me go through with this. 
And so Peter then responds and says, no, 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 you'll never wash my feet. Now, what's interesting is that he, they use a word here for washing in verse 6 and in verse 7 or in verse 8, washing the feet, which is a Greek word which indicates just partial washing. It's the word nipto. It just refers to washing your hands or washing your feet or washing your face. And then in verse 10 up here on the screen, uh, Christ is going to use the, a different word. That is the word luo, which indicates taking a full bath. And so Jesus says to Peter, because Peter, after Peter says, um, if, uh, you don't, uh, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet in verse 8, the Lord says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And he's still using the word wash, nipto. And when, he, when Jesus says, you'll have no part with me, he's saying you'll have no share in the inheritance. He's not saying you won't get to heaven. He's saying you won't have a role in the kingdom. That's what inheritance was. All of that is uh, just background and not the focal point of what I'm talking about here, what I bring out. Jesus says to him, he who is bathed, he who is fully washed, needs only to have a partial washing. He only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And he uses the word katharos. And he says, and you. Now he changes from talking about you singular talking to Peter. And he says, you all, he's talking to the 12, including, including Judas, because he's still there. And he says, and you all are clean, but not all of you. So what he, when he says that, that you all are clean, he is talking about their positional cleanness, or their imputed cleanness, because they have imputed righteousness. So John 13.11 is really John's parenthesis, he says, for he knew who would betray him. See, he knows Judas is going to betray him. So therefore, he said, you are not all clean because he knows there's one guy here that's not saved, the others are all saved, and the fact that all the others are saved is indicated by that phrase, you are all clean. And so when we come to John 15.3, where he says, you all are already clean, that makes it clear that when he's talking to the disciples in John 15.1 through 10, he's talking to them as believers. He's, the issue there isn't getting justified Abiding doesn't mean having faith so that you're saved. He is saying that as a saved person, you have to abide in me, that abiding is something that relates to the spiritual life after salvation, and it is not talking about how to get life at salvation. John thirteen twelve. he goes on to say, when they had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, he says, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. Now, what does that mean? Down through history, you've had a lot of people taking this literally, and they think you, and, and if the fact there are denominations that practice feet washing at communion, and they actually literally will wash one another's feet, pass the basin, and go through all of this as ritual. But washing the feet is just a picture, a symbolism for being cleansed when we confess sin after we have sinned. 
And so it goes further than that because when we confess our sins, what happens? God forgives us. So when Christ then says, uh, if I've washed your feet, in other words, I've cleansed you, I've forgiven you, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The washing of feet pictures God's forgiveness. So if God forgives us, then we are to forgive one another, and that is foundational to being able to fulfill Christ's commandment in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice that comparison. In the Old Testament, the command was that you are to love one another, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the comparison there is how you love yourself, that we all have self-love. But Jesus ups the ante here. He says, now you don't love your, your neighbor as yourself. You love your neighbor as I loved you. Now, that's impossible, isn't it? That can only be accomplished through God, through the Holy Spirit as a fruit of the Spirit. And that, that's why he says in verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if we're going to kind of put these things together to wrap up this morning's message, we have a lot more to go on this. Remember where, where Paul is headed in John, um, in Ephesians three fourteen to nineteen, is that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of Christ's love for us. So when we read a passage like "You are to love one another as I have loved you," we need to be thinking about how did Christ love us? That's that's the beyond platinum standard for what love is. It's not looking at other human beings. It is looking at Christ's love for us that we come to understand how we are to love one another. And that is what helps us to understand where we're going in Ephesians chapter 3 that we are to comprehend this love of Christ. And so we'll come back next time and continue to explore what it means, that what the love of Christ means, and what it means to love one another in the context of that prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, look at these things this morning, to be challenged, because when we think about these things, we all realize that we fall somewhat short in our spiritual lives when it comes to loving one another as you have, lo- as Christ has loved us. So, Father, we pray that you might continue to open our eyes to what this means, to help us to understand what the scriptures teach, what they illustrate, what they describe that we may come to understand the, the significance that you place on loving one another because this is what you say is how all men will know that we are your disciples because of our love for one another. Father, we pray that anyone listening who has never trusted Christ as Savior may be unsure of their salvation, uh, uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain.
Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. He paid the penalty for every single sin. That doesn't save us, but it in it is the basis for our salvation that by trusting in him then and in his completed work on the cross that he paid that penalty for us, that by believing in him, trusting in his sufficient death on the cross and not trusting in anything else, not adding anything else, we have everlasting life. It is ours forever and ever. And, Father, we thank you for this eternal life, and we pray that those who are listening who've never accepted that free gift would do so. And, Father, we pray that we would recognize that it doesn't stop with the giving of the gift because now we have to develop it. We have that, have this new spiritual life. We have to learn to live in light of all that you have done for us and to that our lives would be uh, truly an example of your grace. So, Father, we pray that we would be focused upon that. And, Father, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.